Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. On Sunday, April 15th, Jawad, a prisoner in the French city of Toulouse, was found dead. Guards claimed that he had killed himself, but other prisoners reported that these guards had beaten him to death. Ninety prisoners protested his death by refusing to return to their cells. Shortly after, outside the prison walls, riots began in response to Jawad's death. Luxury cars were burned and a police station attacked with Molotovs. In the subsequent nights, large groups of police were dispatched to repress the revolt, but, quote, mobile groups of 30 to 40 people, unquote, ambushed these police detachments. In addition to the riots in multiple residential districts, there were public demonstrations in the city center featuring messages of support to the prisoners and banners reading, destroy prisons. These riots in Toulouse are part of a wave of social unrest across France, featuring rural anti-development clashes, train worker strikes, occupations by students and refugees, and most recently, heavy riots in Paris for May Day. Last week, we began hearing prisoners' voices on the topic of Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons Obsolete? Up first this week, we have Anastasia Schmid's response to the book, followed by Angaza Iman Bahar reading his response to us from Miami Correctional Facility. Anastasia writes, My pervading response to this book is unfortunately one of despair. The reason being is prompted by the grim reality of its publication date and subsequently the publication dates of all the references that preceded this work. It weighs upon me to know how long we've been aware of these interconnected hegemonic power structures that have so grossly and vastly oppressed so many, now globally as well as nationally, and yet all of these issues and problems have only grown to epic proportions rather than being ameliorated or abolished in some way. It is in this space of awareness that I ask myself and challenge others to ask, how and where have these hegemonic ideologies, racism, sexism, xenophobia, etc., been created? What sources solidify the perpetuation of these fallacious human hierarchical beliefs? And therefore, how can we come together to dismantle the things that reinforce those beliefs, which then thereby solidify the power structures that grossly harm and oppress their targeted populations? I've now been imprisoned for 17 years, years that precede the research and writing of this important book. Herein lies part of what is so distressing. Why is it that more people are not aware of the contents or context of this book 15 years later? To the extent that nothing has changed within these systems, only progressively worsened, and now only to grow to astronomical proportions. How do we collectively come together to bring a mass awareness? To open the dialogue to others who had never bothered to so much as pick up a book of this type? This is where I open my discussion and commentary. I ask all the aforementioned questions to engage in an even deeper thought process as to the ways and means incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people have been vilified and dehumanized, in other words, turned into, quote, criminals, convicts, inmates, offenders, felons, prisoners, unquote. These tropes create what I refer to as convict race, a term I reappropriate and expand from Dr. Nicole Siegel's to encompass all people, male and female of all races, creeds, etc., who are encompassed in the carceral state and how this trope instills and solidifies the power structures that oppress and harm those ensnared within it, indefinitely. Simply being released from prison does not magically restore these people's humanity. If anything, the formerly incarcerated are even further demonized by non-welcoming external society. Even those who claim to wish to help and, quote, believe in second chances, unquote, expect that help or second chance to come in ways that do not directly involve the people or the communities that claim they believe in such things. 
For example, the number of incarcerated people that gain a higher education while in prison, that is, those of us who've been fortunate enough to do so in states that still provide such programs during a time when they were available, who then are effectively barred from graduate education once we are released from prison, sometimes by the very same institutions that provided our undergraduate educations while we were inside, or the liberal communities that fight for housing opportunities for low socioeconomic status people, but will not equally fight or allow formerly incarcerated people to obtain housing and housing assistance in those very same communities or through the assistance of those said agencies. The attitude of, yeah, we believe they should have a second chance, but not in our neighborhood, schools, company, etc. I say all this to pose the question of, how do we overcome such deep-seated discriminatory beliefs about people who have become ensnared within a system that effectively made us less than human or non-human, not worthy of the same rights, benefits, or treatment as others, inherently different, flawed, inferior, etc. How do we make incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people just that? people. We have to become people worthy of all the accoutrement of life, liberty, and the proverbial pursuit of happiness before we can hope to dismantle these deeply ingrained systems of power and control. In these arguments, we must understand that such things as democracy, justice, and equality never existed to begin with for anyone outside of the white affluent males. We certainly could add conservative right-wing Christian heterosexual on top of that demographic to gain an even clearer perception of exactly who and what the law applies to. More on that later. We must examine how we view people, worthy versus unworthy, deserving versus undeserving, and how we define, label, and categorize people, and how by doing so, we effectively remove and exclude specific people or groups from actually being seen or treated as people. Any time incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people are referred to or viewed as anything other than people, or in a context that tags their crime, or details of their crime, to their words, image, look, testimony, etc., a conscious or subconscious trope is solidified that can and does harm, oppress, or create fertile ground for discrimination against that person, often permanently. We need to look at how and why a life sentence is the death penalty, really. How any prison sentence or felony conviction is a death sentence in that it is a civil or social death. A person is no longer a person, no longer a viable human being. They are no longer treated as human. But then again, most of those people were never seen as human or equal to begin with, especially people of color and women. When we speak of lawbreakers, such discussions are clearly only referring to those who have been caught or those who were convicted. I have yet to encounter a human who hasn't broken the law in some fashion or regard, yet how easy it has become for any person who hasn't been arrested or convicted in a court of law to assume a righteous position that they themselves are somehow not criminals and not lawbreakers. There are multiple ways humanity creates dichotomies of us versus them. Paradigms and paradoxes that exclude or include certain people or groups, thereby creating these hierarchies of existence. These are the things we must address individually and collectively. When, where, why, and how do we create these divisions and separations of humanity? Who is excluded? Who is included? Who counts as human, citizens, deserving, worthy? One person cannot have freedom or rights under any of the current systems without creating unfreedom and no rights to another, or for one group over another. We have to address those things first. So where are the tropes of the convict race created? Most noticeably, the media. Pay attention to the news in particular. Newspapers, TV, and online source news broadcasts, mainstream magazines, etc. Look at the words and images that are used whenever incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people are featured or referred to in basically any context. I have been at the forefront, along with several of my colleagues, in bringing awareness to and opposing the epistemic injustice and violence that occurs when media sources tag crime or convictions and or sensationalize the aforementioned to incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people within media sources, damning a human being eternally by reiterating crimes and conviction any time that person is featured or referred to, particularly after a 
person's sentence is complete perpetuates the social and civil death, stereotyping and discrimination, and sets up a person for attack on every level, effectively continues to lock them out of opportunities, particularly those of basic need i.e. housing, employment, government, assistance, education, etc. The most recent devastation and striking examples of this can be seen in recent articles produced by the New York Times and Indianapolis Star in regards to one of my best friends and colleagues, Michelle Jones, who was released from prison this past August and is now attending NYU's American Studies PhD program. I purposely choose not to provide extensive commentary on this particular example as a, I feel through pointing out the exact details of what they have done further solidifies exactly what type of commentary and depiction this aims to do, and b, I encourage readers to critically examine articles about incarcerated or informally incarcerated people for themselves to see if they are able to distinguish how and where language and imagery is used to distort and taint people's perception about incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people in ways that vilify and undermine them as human beings. Beyond the news, look to television programming, films, advertising, books, magazines, and basically any other common everyday source of information or entertainment. I argue beyond Angela Davis's argument that such things do not just normalize the prison, making it omnipresent, but it also solidifies our perceived need for the prison as well as who defines who is supposed to be in prison and furthermore solidifies the power structures that insist the purpose on one hand is safety and security, deserving versus undeserving. When crime or conviction is tagged, that becomes the defining identity of said person. It effectively obliterates who the person was prior to the crime or conviction, who they are post, and any other normally defining characteristic of their personhood, if not complete obliteration, certainly a pervasive foreshadowing that cannot be removed. That person spends a lifetime being judged, persecuted, and condemned for that action, or, in some cases, of the failure to act regardless of time, change, transformation, or other defining characteristics or attributes. He or she must perpetually explain what happened and why, even to complete strangers. They must continuously defend and attempt to affirm or reaffirm who they are as people. They must try to defend their past actions or certainly continuously display remorse or guilt for what has happened. It makes no difference who they were prior to the offense or the circumstances and conditions under which it occurred, nor does it matter who they are and what they have done with their lives since. The crime or conviction becomes an indelible stain on their personhood, what Michelle Jones refers to as the taint of criminality. So therein lies the conundrum. How do we overcome the taint of criminality and the creation of the convict race to allow the average everyday citizen, those who are not members of the more liberal branches of the ivory tower or already part of an alternative and radical group of thinkers and activists to become interested and invested in the lives of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people? On the remote chance, people do become aware of so many of the issues that Angela Davis and others bring to the forefront with books such as these. How do you get those people to care or to see a need and harbor a desire for change when their perceptions are clouded and infiltrated by such core depths by these indefinitely vilifying portrayals and identity markers? How do you even begin to spark interest in these scholarly works or activist movements when the subjects at hand are not seen as subjects, but mere undeserving objects by the vast majority of the dominant society? Some of the work we engage in seeks to challenge and change the dominant narrative, and when the pervasive question of who is a criminal, what is a crime, and furthermore, when does a charge and sentence fully end for those who have been given such labels? Anytime I encounter these stories or depiction in some form of news coverage, I am left feeling outraged and depleted. Yesterday, local news covered a story of a woman's recent release, Lori Tackett. 
With all the theatrics of a Hollywood horror story, the commentary recapped the grisly details of the nearly 25-year-old crime, including the mention of the two co-defendants who were released over a decade ago, and nearly two decades ago, respectively. What I noticed beyond the aforementioned was the failure to discuss the fact that the two previously released women in this conviction have lived perfectly law-abiding lives ever since, or any mention of the details of the past 24 years of Lori's life while incarcerated. How is this woman, or any other in a similar circumstance, ever expected to successfully reintegrate into society where there has already been clearly an effort to thwart their return by recriminalizing and vilifying them after their sentences have been served. This is precisely what I mean when I say that all prison sentences are death sentences. From that note, I move on to discuss the innumerable incarcerated people who are possibly not sentenced to such do indeed die unnecessarily while incarcerated. Over the years, I have held an eyewitness account of these occurrences more than once with little or no recourse for the victims and survivors of those incidents. It is as though several of those incidents, nor the women themselves, ever happened or existed. The outside world more often than not remains oblivious, and when these happenings are made public, there is deliberate social indifference or the incident is briefly spoken of, then disappears before anything comes of it or any real change is made. Who cares if it happens to a prisoner? Such media portrayals are infused with fear and loathing tactics, further publicly shaming people post-incarceration. Nothing positive or productive is achieved through this type of media representation. It is as if, once a person has a conviction, it is fair game for anyone to print, say, project, or portray anything about them however they see fit with complete disregard to the person themselves or how this may negatively affect their life and potentially create infinite forms of harm to them on multiple levels. Incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people are nearly always depicted in very specific stereotyped ways, as are prisons and jails, that solidify the power structures that oppress, harm, and marginalize. It is further imperative to bring awareness to the fact that those power structures are intimately interconnected in order to prevent anything that defies those dominant narratives and fallaciously created tropes. Politicians, legislators, capitalist corporations with a vested interest in profits from punishment, lobbyists, major mainstream media sources, universities, government agencies are interconnected to maintain the entire infrastructure of the prison industrial complex and the carceral state. Such has been the case throughout American history. This is in Gaza, currently incarcerated at a Miami County Correctional Facility. I'm about to read to you my book report on Angela Davis book, Our Prison Obsolete. In her book, Our Prison Obsolete, Angela Davis provides her reader with not just a better understanding of the prison industrial complex, but she dares to pose to all of us the question of should society continue to rely on incarceration as the primary means of punishment. As a leading theorist in the prison abolition movement, Professor Davis has dedicated her entire life to the global struggle to liberate the world from the grips of a patriotic, racist capitalism society. Here, Professor Davis helps us to separate prison activists who are simply championing a reformist agenda and prison abolitionists who are seeking the complete dismantle of a systematic practice of regulating an ever larger portion of poor and racially oppressed communities to an isolated existence of incarceration under the authoritarian control of a regime who purposes to exploit those held within the prison industrial complex. Such a position is revolutionary in the current debate over mass incarceration, which is dominated by the prison reformers. It is safe to say that these reformers are not interested in contesting the legitimacy of the prison system and seek only to reform current conditions within that system. Because this position is at odds with that of the prison abolitionists, these reformers seek to discredit voices such as Professor Davis, 
by arguing that the idea of prison abolition is unrealistic and too implausible for serious consideration. The hesitation on their part to consider the merit of the abolitionist position suggests that these reformers are perfectly fine with the practice of sequestering people in dreadful institutions infected with rampant violence, sexual abuse, and naked exploitation. The fact that few of these reformers have ever spent any time inside prison obviously blind them to the fact that these institutions are not just designed to separate people from their communities and family, but also subject them to the naked exploitation of corporate America, who are out to rake in huge profits off the suffering and misery of the poor and people of color. It is this role that capitalists play in all this which has continued to drive the growth of the prison population, and it's that fact that which Professor Davis now asks us to analyze. Why is it so difficult for the most advanced society ever known to man to envision a social order that prefers repentance over vengeance and the pursuit of justice? This is the main question that Professor Davis is posing, and by doing so, has dared to move the debate beyond simple prison reform. She has correctly asserted that prisons as an institution has become one of the most important features of our image environment. As such, we tend to take its existence for granted and accept it as a sort of common sense approach to punishment. This is not accidental and, in fact, the result of a systematic campaign to legitimize the prison in the conscience of the people. To develop a better understanding of this, Professor Davis felt it necessary to take us back to the origin of the modern-day approach to punishment. The historical link between the practice of slavery and mass incarceration has not received nearly as much attention as it deserves. The evidence, however, suggests that both these American institutions were designed to control the nation's black population. Drawn on the work of historian Adam J. Hirsch, Professor Davis points out to us, if the penitentiary internal regime resembles that of the plantation at so closely that the two were often loosely equated, how could the prison possibly function to rehabilitate criminals? Hirsch goes on to say, one may perceive in the penitentiary many reflections of chattel slavery as it was practiced in the South, but both institutions subordinate their subjects to the will of others. Like Southern slaves, prisoners follow a daily routine specified by their superiors. Both institutions reduce their subjects to dependency on others for their fire basic human needs such as food and shelter. Both isolate their subjects from the general population by confining them to fixed habitats and both frequently coerce their subjects to work, often for longer hours and less compensation than free labor. All of this is possible because in the 19th and 20th century, viewed these blacks who were incarcerated as slaves. And while the government, corporations, and the dominant media all try to portray racism as an unfortunate aberration of the past, reality suggests that racism continues to have a profound influence on America's contemporary structures, attitudes, and behaviors. Nowhere is this more evident than America's criminal justice system, where blacks continue to be disproportionately represented when it comes to arrests, convictions, and harsh prison sentences passed out by judges, which all help to fuel the mass incarceration dilemma gripping the nation. While many believe the passage of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution abolished the practice of slavery, Few are aware that the exceptions written into that historical piece of legislation would allow the peculiar institution to continue so long as those affected by it had been convicted of a crime. This exception meant that slavery wasn't abolished, only the terms under which the practice would be continued modified to give the state the sole privilege of the right to own human beings. 
Not surprisingly, after the passage of the 13th Amendment, most southern states rushed to develop criminal justice systems that would allow them to take full advantage of the conviction clause written into that legislation. Laws known as black codes, which were adopted from the slave code, appeared that criminalized blacks for acts that had they been white would not be considered illegal. Thus was born the convict lease system, a system which made it possible for convicts to be leased out to work to those with political connections or the means to pay the jailer's fees. The courtroom became the, the ideal place to exact racial retribution and widely utilized to place black people back in bondage despite emancipation. Professor Davis described the conditions under which these black prisoners were subjected as slave owners may have been concerned for the survival of individual slaves who, after all, represented significant investments. Convicts, on the other hand, were leased out not as individuals but as groups, and they could be worked literally to death without affecting the profitability of the convict crew. And worked to death many were indeed as the South rushed to create an industrialized society in the wake of the Civil War. To illustrate this point, Professor Davis relies on Alex Lichtenstein's description of the convict lease system. The prisoners ate and slept on bare ground, without blankets or mattresses, and often without clothes. They were punished for slow hoeing, which was ten lashes, sorry planting, five lashes, and being light with cotton, five lashes. Some who attempted to escape were whipped till the blood ran down their legs. Others had a metal spur riveted to their feet. Convict dropped from exhaustion, pneumonia, malaria, frostbite, consumption, sunstroke, dysenteria, gunshot wounds, and shackle poison, the constant rubbing of chains and leg irons against bare flesh. Under these black codes, the wholesale criminalization of the black community took place, and the motive behind this went beyond racist belief. Lichtenstein breaks down this motive, pointing out for us that New South Capitals in Georgia and elsewhere were able to use the state to recruit and discipline a convict labor force and thus were able to develop their state's resources without creating a wage labor force and without undermining planters' control of black labor. In fact, quite the opposite. The penal system could be used as a powerful sanction against rural blacks who challenged the racial order upon which agricultural labor control relied. These were official actions sanctioned and carried out by the state, not as a irrational regression brought on due to bitterness over losing the Civil War, nor were they throwbacks to pre-capitalist modes of production, but rather an effective and rational deployment of racist strategies to swiftly achieve industrialization for the South. Black convict labor was the South's primary means towards modernization, yet rarely are their contributions mentioned when the subject of how this great nation was able to become a superpower. It is extremely unsettling for many to think that the modern, industrialized urban areas of the Southern America can trace its origins to the racist labor penal servitude described by most historians as worse than slavery. However, one of the many rules racism has achieved in this country is the virtual whiteout of the historical contributions people of color have contributed to the development and prosperity of America. As a consequence of this whiteout, many people in America believe that blacks have not made any meaningful contribution to society and thus do not place any value on black lives. It is this devaluing of black lives which caused black people to be viewed as disposable and undeserving. It is difficult to even begin to imagine how much is owed to the tens of thousands of black convicts who were regulated to penal servitude during the 19th to 20th century. 
But here, Professor Davis has attempted to shed light on their tragic sacrifices and in doing so have exposed the deep-seated connection between a part of America's ugly past and today's current practice of private business exploitation of the nation's prison population in the name of justice. As a prisoner, I tend to agree 100% with Professor Davis' position that the persistence of prison as the primary means of punishment has done little, if anything, to reduce crime. It has, however, helped corporate America generate huge profits and provide goods and services as well as utilizing cheap labor. When you add to the fact that they have stripped prisons of any meaningful educational opportunities while increasing repressive means of control, and evidence suggests that America's prison system, with its sinister array of relationships linking corporate government and correctional communities and the media, is indeed a prison industrial complex. Activists and scholars alike all now contest the prevailing rhetoric embraced by these, those who benefit from this prison industrial complex, which promote the notion that crime is behind America's mass incarceration problem. By simply drawing from all the existing evidence, they demonstrate that while crime rates continue to decrease, the prison population continues to increase. That increase, activists and scholars contend, is due to the rapid growing prison construction industry who continue to build new institutions that must be filled with human bodies. Why is it important to dispel this myth, and by doing so, will society be better served? Professor Davidson, I believe so, and she has attempted to lay out the path for us to create a better means of justice. In the final chapter of her book, which is appropriately titled Abolitionist Alternatives, Professor Davis provides us with several alternatives to incarceration. Shifting the focus from perceiving prison as simply an isolated institution to viewing the current system as a set of relationships that comprise the correctional community, transnational corporations, media conglomerates, guards unions, and legislative and courts with agendas, Professor Davis acknowledged that there is no single alternative for the replacement of the prison industrial complex. The current penal system is too deeply embedded in the economic, political, and ideological life of America and the transnational trafficking and its commodities, culture, and ideas. Because the contemporary means of punishment is tied up in these relationships, it is an effective strategy to contest these relationships by offering alternatives to the application of justice that would pull them apart. Here, Professor Davis takes a step in that direction by suggesting we eliminate corporate access to punishment for the sake of profit. Punishment that rely on race and class as a primary factor and punishment as a sole means of justice. Addressing these issues will bring us closer to creating a justice system whose primary focus is on reparation and reconciliation rather than retribution and vengeance. These alternatives will require a radical transformation of many aspects of our society, such as addressing racism, male dominance, homophobic, class bias, and all other structures of dominance. It's within this context that Professor Davis proposed we consider the decriminalization of drugs use as a significant component of a larger strategy to simultaneously oppose structures of racism within the criminal justice system that would further the abolition agenda of decarceration. We must also support the current campaign calling for decriminalization of undocumented immigrants and in doing so challenge the expansion reach of racism. And finally, we must address violence against women, which is so pervasive throughout society and the source of the devaluing of women as a means to control and exploit them. To create an agenda of decarceration, we must cast a broad net to help us do the ideological work of pulling apart the conceptual link between crime and punishment. 
this more nuanced understanding of the social role of the punishment system requires us to give up our usual way of thinking about punishment as an inventable consequence of crime. It should help us recognize that punishment does not flow from crime in the neat and logical sequence offered by those who insist on justice through imprisonment and that the current means of punishment is linked to the agenda of politicians, profit drive of corporate America, and meter representation of crime. Imprisonment is associated with the racialization of those most likely to be punished. It is associated with this class, and as we have seen, gender structures as well. If we are serious about ridding society of this ugly practice of racial profiling that leads to incarceration, then we must insist that any abolitionist alternatives must not only focus on the prison system, but also all those institutions within our society which a direct social relation that support the premises of the prison. An attempt to create a new conceptual terrain for imagining an alternative to imprisonment includes the ideological work of questioning why criminals have been constituted as a class of human beings undeserving of the civil and human rights associated to others. Acknowledging this disparity in the intensity of police surveillance accounts in part for racial and class-based disparities in arrest and imprisonment rates. Thus, if we are ready to take seriously the consequence of in this class-biased justice system, we will accept the conclusion that enormous numbers of people are in prison simply because they were driving while black or fit the prescription of the suspect. They were sent to prison not so much as a result of any crime that was committed, but largely as a consequence of their entire community having been criminalized. To combat this problem, we must create programs for decriminalization that will address the specific activities of the police, prosecutors, public defenders, and judges that make it easy for criminalization of an entire community. Professor Davis' book, Are Prison Obsolete, should be included as required reading in the ever-growing body of literature which is focused on reshaping the current system of justice around strategies of reparation rather than retribution, as well as the growing body of experimental evidence of the advantage of these approaches to justice and of the democratic possibilities they promise. As such, I highly recommend it as a required reading for all who claim to be a part of this movement for social justice. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.